0: On this week's episode of the Finding Strength podcast, we got Chief Josh Adams of the Orem Police Department and my good friend uh, Jordan Lee, the Director of Operations Professional Services, co founder of Deer Hollow <laughs> Recovery and Wellness.
1: All my the boy, things. Boy, Jordan. All the things. I know. I'm so he's, excited. he's all the things.
0: <laughs> yeah, this episode's rad, huh? Did you like it?
1: I did. I did like it. I think it's going to um, affect a lot of people in a very good way. I think it will um, also give some confirmation to some people who are struggling and people who don't know how to ask for help. And yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Cool. Uh, we're excited for you guys to hear it. But before, if you wouldn't mind going into <laughs> Spotify and leaving us a five star review at the top of the podcast page, you click the little three dots one two three and then there you just click five stars and you're done it'll take you 15 seconds we only have 17 reviews we want to yeah. get it up above 100 because that's when things really start working for us well, and then Apple Podcasts leave a review as well whatever podcast platform you're on if you can leave a five star review that helps us a lot
1: it helps us to help other people and that's our end game here is to try and help as many people as we can so if you guys can help us with that you also are affecting other people's lives too
0: boom We hope you like the new videos enjoy the episode <laughs>
1: Welcome back to Finding Strength Podcast. Um, today with us, we have Jordan Lee, director oh. of, yeah, 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 Jordan Lee,
2: <laughs>
3: director
1: of Deer Hollow. And then we have Josh, Josh Adams, who is chief of police in Orham. Yes. Awesome. So today we're going to talk with them about...
0: Awesomeness. <laughs> we're going to have a great conversation. We're going to
1: dive into their stories and how you guys got into what you got into. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: Josh is is my good friend. Jordan's my good friend. I travel around with Jordan all over the place. Jordan's been on the podcast before. You guys know him. We actually did uh, episode fifty four of the podcast was the what's the no name? Man's. Of that podcast? No one fights alone. Oh no yeah, one no fights one fights alone. Fights alone. Yeah. yeah, Jordan and I were on there, and Josh was the host. and It was a really great conversation. So we kind of want to like uh, piggyback off that whole shebang thing. It yeah. was really awesome. But more than anything, we want to hear. You know, we want to get to know you guys. We want to because Jordan's been on the podcast. What is this the third time now? Fourth, third or fourth? Third or fourth? You've had that many
3: cancellations.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't listen to <laughs> to podcasts. So, so. you just he's, he's just a guest only. No, listening. yeah. Yes. But we'll we sleep. don't know your uh, your story. Story, yeah. My origin story. Yeah. Like we've never had you do it on the show. No do you want to give us the background? Let's let's kick it out with Jordan. Let's tell us.
1: Yeah. About, just give us a little story you. about you.
3: Take the next step.
2: You want a story or do you want a a, a recap? Do you want a 30,000 foot view? You do what you got to do, homie. All right. Well,
1: <clears throat> you do what you think will help others.
2: For for yeah. me, it, what's comfortable for me is to normally start off with, "Hey, I'm Jordan, I'm an alcoholic." Okay. An alcoholic in recovery. That, Hi, Jordan. Hey. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that brings me home. Oh, there it is. Good. That Baseline. That, we got
2: it. That brings me home. I, I am a, a through and through 12-step guy, um, but today I'm so many other things because of what I've been able to go through in my life. Um, it's interesting. It's scary to, to talk about your life because if people listen to it, like your mom or your dad, and you're transparent and open about or vulnerable we're always worried that people are going to hear, oh, I screwed up my son, or oh, I did, and yeah, you did. This is what we do. We, we, <laughs> da- we damage other humans. So mm-hmm. um, I started with, I, I'm the youngest, I grew up thinking that I was the youngest of five kids, and as I got older, it turned out I'm the youngest of six. Um, mom gave a baby up for adoption, and so I found an oldest brother, Montel, who lives in California, who's come back into my life, and I guess it goes back to family, childhood trauma, or family dysfunction. I grew up without a dad. My dad was forced to leave the family when I was two years old. So I grew up not having a dad. And as you grow up, you don't realize that you didn't have a dad until you're at a friend's house and they make you go home for dinner because dad's home and it's time to eat. And that's when you're like, oh, that feels a little bit icky. You know, it feels a little bit icky. And I grew up looking up to my older sister's boyfriends. And to be honest, Mm -hmm. my older sister's boyfriends were trash. My sisters do not did not know how to pick men, <laughs> as most teenagers don't.
1: Well, their dad left.
2: Teenagers without dad didn't have an <clears>
1: example, <throat> yeah. <laughs>
2: and so I made really poor decisions. I was kicked out of fifth grade. Three different fifth grades I was kicked out of for fighting because fighting was the first tool that I, that I chose to use to deal with my emotions. At looking back at it, you understand that, but as a kid – you don't understand why you're doing what you're doing, but I was fighting. And, and, and I was fighting with people mostly because I was always sticking up for somebody else. And as I got older, I realized that I was always sticking up for somebody else because I felt like maybe I needed somebody to stick up for me mm. and someone to be there for me. And it always got me in a lot of trouble. Yeah. And so what eventually happened is I got into drugs and alcohol, and I got kicked out of eighth grade. So I started smoking weed, started smoking cigarettes, started doing acid, mushrooms, heroin, like I said. In eighth grade? Eighth grade was mostly just acid, mushrooms, a lot of drinking. And in eighth grade, I was kicked out of school for drug distribution and wasn't allowed to go back. Wow. And with a single mom that works at 5 a.m. and comes home at 5 p.m. since I was in elementary school, it was really easy for me to, there's no one home. I remember being sent to alternative schools or given home packets and I was home alone. So I became a drug dealer in in Conwood Heights. That's what I did is I sold drugs at a mom's house for the next couple of years. And it escalated to a point where I was doing meth and cocaine and hard drugs at a young age. And I remember being a runaway because I I had an ankle monitor. Great people like Josh would stop me when I was doing bad stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And at the time it was like, hey, you know, screw these guys, screw the cops. They're out to get me. But the reality, looking back at it, they were there to save my life. They were there to put a stop. And every time I got locked up or I, I went to jail, I was pissed and I was upset and I was not guilty <laughs> like everybody <laughs> like everybody thinks they are. But looking back, it was those short stays that saved my life, that prolonged my, my ability to to gain a little bit of weight, to eat some food. And, and I, I was a runaway at a young age, and I remember I was gone for about six months. And on my 16th birthday, I called my mom at 10 at night. And I said, um, I woke her up and she's crying. She's saying, where are you, honey? Come home. And I don't want her to to hear that I'm crying, but I'm like, I love you, mom. I just want to let you know. She's like, happy birthday. (laughs) And, uh, and it was a, it was a, I I remember that I'll never forget that. And um, I was near death at a young age and I was doing awful bad things and I got locked up. I got locked up. I got sent to a treatment center, and I did the 12 steps, and I got my life back. I was able to go back my senior year of high school because I had really great therapist. I had a good support team around me. My mom never gave up on me, and I got sober, and <clears throat> I got to wrestle varsity at Brighton High School for a little bit. I was a 4.0 student. I was on the honor roll. I dated the head cheerleader. My brother gave me a car, and I'd never been to a school dance. I'd never experienced School for life as as a child. And the thing about when you get well is it's you get well and you're happy. And most people think, Hey, I'm great. I'm going to get a good job. I'm going to get a good girlfriend. I'm just going to live my life. But one thing I I I did not know or understand is that I suffered from a fatal illness called alcoholism. That over any considerable time it gets worse, never better. And when I left treatment, they said, Hey, you have to do all these things. Well, none of those things were uh, sexy. You know, I was like go to the Alano Club, you know, be of service, do these things. Mm-hmm. what I d- I decided to do was serve an LDS mission. Uh, I had two older brothers, one uh, wasn't doing good things and he didn't serve a mission and it's kind of the norm in, in the community of Salt Lake to say, hey, I'm going to serve a mission and so I sold my car, paid for my mission, and I went on a mission. I think I was the best missionary because I had a lot of life experiences at that <laughs> time and mm-hmm. in the Midwest, I shoveled snow and talked about Jesus for two years. is, is pretty much what I did. <laughs> And uh, I came home, and I had a knee knee surgery, and when the pills ran out, I was dope sick again. Mm -hmm. I was 22 years old, and um, it woke up that monster inside of me that almost killed me as a child. Um, I was married. Um, This girl didn't know. She knew that I had those past issues, but what nobody knew is that I was uh, suffering from a severe Mm -hmm. pill problem. It was so bad that when the pills ran out, rather than just stop or tell somebody that I had a problem, I got in a car and I drove to Mexico and I bought um, $10,000 worth of oxycotton. And I came home and that was my business for the next couple of years. That's how I paid for the wedding. Everyone thought that I was a good return missionary and had a sales job downtown where I was flying to Mexico twice a week. And I was picking up a lot of oxycotton and coming back and selling it. And it was really difficult because that ten thousand dollars was thirty thousand dollars in three days, and I thought I am brilliant, I am so smart. Mm-hmm. This is gonna, this mm-hmm. is gonna catapult me <laughs> into great things in life. Mm-hmm. And uh, after a lot of trips and a couple months down there, I had a bunch of money and I had I had thirty grand strapped to my leg, and I was grabbed by a bunch of people in Mexico, bad people, and taken into a dark place. And I fought my way and I ran, I ran out of, out of that place. And I ran to the border, and that's when I decided I was going to start trying to get sober again. And the next three years of homelessness and despair were awful. I mean, I was so sick doing cocaine, meth, heroin, smoking crack that I had lost. I didn't lose. People say, oh, I lost my marriage. I lost my car. I gave all those things away. Yeah. I know where all of my stuff went because I gave it away, and I traded it for drugs. And uh, where it kind of ended is I was so sick— that my toenails all turned black and popped off. My eye was swollen shut. My face was infected. I'd had multiple nasal surgeries because I was, I was physically dying. I was spiritually dead a long time ago, but what eventually happens is, you know, you're emotionally, mentally, spiritually sick, but physically I was, I was dying. And near that end, I had met, who's my wife today, Chantelle as a homeless, as a, that, that was the condition I was in when I met my wife. I can't believe she married me.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> we and,
2: can't
0: either, man.
1: <laughs> I can. And, and the crazy energy. thing is
2: is that it was like, hey, a cheap bottle of $4 Kamchatka vodka in the morning. She loved Reese's Pieces, and we'd get a little bit of heroin and make it through the day. And for the next couple of months, we were kicked out of my, my mom's house, all of her friend's house, anywhere that we could stay. We were, we were homeless together. We spent a night in an igloo, which was awesome. It was very interesting. That's a weird story. I came out of the igloo naked in a, in a, in a, um, a big Cottonwood Canyon because we're having sex in the igloo. Okay, I'm just
1: going to <laughs> Be very and, transparent.
2: And, uh, and there was a scout group, a scout troop walking oh, by. No, I'm, no. I'm standing there steaming outside of this igloo, and I'm just like, oh, shit. And, and, and uh, that morning, uh, it was like 6 a.m., uh, I drove to my mom's house, and she let us stay there. She let us stay there for a couple of nights. She said, you can stay here for three hours. And uh, we stayed there for a couple of days. My my wife ended up going to jail and I decided that I was going to stop. And I detoxed on the floor of a dope house. And I went back to the 12-step meetings and I went to three meetings a day for the next 90 days. And I knew that I could stay sober if I just went from meeting to meeting to meeting and prayed with all of my heart that I didn't want to do this anymore, that I wanted to live. I made a decision that I wanted to live and I wanted to be happy. And I was able to, to get on a path of recovery with who is my wife today. And we have three beautiful children under the ages of nine. And I've dedicated my life to being of service.
0: Boom.
1: Yeah. What you've done.
0: Jor- Jordan is, is, is one of my best friends. I, I adore you, man. You're just the coolest dude. And we spent a ton of time together and I can't tell you how many hundreds of Of freaking stories, this guy has. (laughs) I'm sure that they're like 95% true, but the the 5% embellishment is what makes them great. Just kidding. No, they're all true. I I might have to like reduce them a little bit
2: (laughs) to make them believable. (laughs) To, To make it believable.
0: But in the end, the thing that Jordan always carries with him, man, is you are just love, dude. Yeah. You're the most. Loving, generous, kind human. And I, and I, what I've found as, as I've been a part of this world of recovery and 12 steps and addiction and, and just the healing world is the people that are in it who are the healers, they've been through the most. They're the ones who are, have struggled the hardest. And in that struggle, in the pain, in the thick of, of life's darkest moments they've learned more about what it means to be human than anyone else and i think that that's kind of like the the end-all be-all message of of recovery and healing is that our darkest moment moments define us in a way that we allow or that we create and those dark moments can mean a whole hell of a lot. But that goes both ways. They can define us or we can define them. And I think what what Dear Hollow has done and what you've done with your life, man, is you've just taken those dark moments and you've defined them. You've made them work for you rather than you work for them. And and that is one of the hallmarks of recovery. And um, I think that's, that's the, a testament to what it means to recover and it's uh it is an absolute gift to be able to spend as much time with you as as we do i appreciate that That that's true man it is it's 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 cool to hear a story, huh?
1: Oh, it is. Like, I've heard little, but not that in depth. And that's and, just
0: this much. Yeah, know.
1: and that's not the whole thing. I'm sure there's plenty of story. There's actually some stories I really want to hear now. <laughs> there's a lot of good stuff.
2: And, and <clears throat> <laughs> what I, like in a recovery, it's like what happened, what it's like, and what it's like now. And I, I'm not able to touch on what it's like now, but I reflect on the last 16 years in recovery of the things that I've been able to do, not just in Utah, but in the country and around the world being a member of a 12-step program and wanting to expand because my passion I found my higher power through like my buddy always says make the mess the message and I love that because that's what I get to do I get to talk about the mess and relate to somebody where nobody else can because when you can sit down across from somebody else that is suffering and said why did this happen to me that's exactly what I get to do I said hey I've been there Yeah, I felt that way. And there's a way out. And that is powerful.
1: Yeah. And I think that's the beauty in it of what you've done is, yeah, you went through that and you recovered from that and you're still recovering. Like they say, like you're always recovering, correct? And so it's just it's but you didn't stop there. Like you now do this for a living to help other people like get in recovery and help them. And that's that's a beautiful thing because I'm sure you've helped change so many other people's lives just because of your one story. And you didn't keep it to you. You know, it's like the we, the, the I always screw it up. The me over the we. No, we, we over the me. The we is greater than me. And I think that's a perfect example of what you do here today with Dear Hollow. It's really awesome.
3: Yeah. I love it.
1: That's cool. And we got Josh.
3: Well, I mean, I kind of want to offer up my time back to Jordan to hear more about the sex of the eagle. That's more interesting. The uh, snow cave story. (laughs) We'll
0: get my wife on it. I'm
3: sure. sure We need some permission (laughs) first. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I want to find that Boy Scout troop.
3: I know. There. Oh <laughs> <my> <laughs> yeah, we have some thing. clients wandering around town. Don't we? <laughs> I love
1: it. I love, I love it. it. Well then we have Josh here who's chief of police. Like tell us about your story and your background and what got you into what you're doing today. Oh
3: gosh. So I uh, I grew up in Utah. I uh, I come from a family of we had there was five brothers. I was number three of five. And the uh, so my family dynamics were such so my my grandfathers both my grandfathers were world war ii veterans that uh were just blue-collar hard-working people um the home environment that both my dad and my mom came from were tough there were some difficult things that happened in them um and then my mom and dad came together my dad was uh he served on an aircraft carrier in vietnam and They got married, uh, came to Utah, started a life, come from nothing. Um, My dad's very much a blue collar individual. He spent his whole life um, as a lineman for the power company. And uh, they're also very faithful people as raised in the Mormon church, Um, with all that that contributes to life. And then, uh, let's see, when I, uh, growing up, one of the things that I always struggled with was feeling like I was stupid. Um, not smart. Um, there were some things early on in first grade and, and so forth where I was sent for IQ tests and stuff because I thought I had learning disabilities. And I did have a speech disability and I, I had some things. And I remember my entire growing up life feeling like I was stupid and that the only way I was going to succeed was to be bigger, faster, stronger, something mm-hmm. like that. And so it kind of, I think it kind of, hatched in me some sort of a little bit of a uh guardian slash warrior something like that i uh, my my thoughts were okay i'm gonna either play in the nfl or i'm gonna go join the army okay and um i was fairly athletic i uh i actually got a scholarship full scholarship to play football and had to turn it down because i had this conflict about that i was supposed to go on a mission too so i did and I don't devaluate that experience for what it taught me. I mean, you know, kind of the same way you had with snow and talking about Jesus. It's like, hey, if I can survive two years in a third world, hellhole, you know, big confidence builder. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, came home. I was a lot smaller by then, sickly. Um, and I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. I was working a couple of just jobs. Uh, my my mantra has always been, if you can't work smarter, at least work harder. harder. Yeah, man. And, and yeah. so I'm a hard, I mean, that that's what I bring to the table is I know how to work hard. Mm-hmm. I cannot work most people I know. And um, my older, my brother, just older than me, his name was Joe. Um, he was 15 months older than me. He, from when we were little boys, was always going to be a police officer. I mean, around the house, like, if it was a rule not to th- put your toys over here, he would post a no post, no putting your toys here by order of the, the Adam's family <laughs> share. <sheriff." laughs> you know, I mean, he was very, um, he knew exactly what he was going to be his whole life.
1: Okay.
3: And so when I came home from that two year service, so I was 21, he was, he's 15 months older than me. He was just finishing his, uh, police Academy experience. And he's like, you should do this. And I'm like, I'm not smart enough. I'm mm-hmm. dumb. Mm-hmm. And, uh, encouraged me, you know, and, and I was, I remember always being petrified, taking tests and stuff in the police academy. I was like, I'm not going to pass this, I'm not going to pass this, I'm not going to pass this. But I did. I got through it. Um Started in 1999 as a, as a uh, police officer, and then uh, full-time in, in uh, let's see, April of 2000. I, was mar- I, I got married in that time. Um, so 2001 started off as a wonderful year for me. I've got, I've got my full-time dream job. Um, you know, my brother's down the road doing his, we were getting ready to buy our first little, you know, shitty starter home. Um, my, uh, now ex-wife, she was pregnant with our oldest girls, they're twins, they're 22 now. And, uh, life was on a good, felt like it was on a good, uh, launching point to go into whatever it is we do. Um, in August of 2001, my brother was working on Friday night in Lehigh, Utah. Uh, he pulled over a car that had a fellow in it that was a uh, dope dealer. And as he was arresting him, this person was able to retrieve a tiny little gun that he had and fire in it. A 22 round that actually hit my brother's clavicle, missed his armor, hit his clavicle, and then traveled down through his body cavity, aorta lung, and then lodged into his spinal column. Um, that it was a mortal wound. He, they, You know, they estimated he lived for 20 to 30 seconds. But in that time, so as he fell back, paralyzed, mortally wounded, he, you know, fired back on this kid, tore up his liver and so forth. And he drove north and was he was eventually captured. Um, my brother was flown to the hospital, died um, that night. And, uh, you know, that was, for me, it was like, okay, here's my mentor, but not just my mentor, but here's my brother and my closest friend and you know the one that knew the dirt and the good and <laughs> i mean nobody i mean when you not to sound dark or anything, but it's like when that dead man tell motels there's some things that nobody's ever gonna have to know because he was the only other person that knew yeah and yeah. uh so anyway that that was this huge disruption for me but i didn't know how to deal with Anything, um, obviously it was traumatic and I knew it was traumatic, but it was the first time I always, I ever felt what I now recognized to have been just traumatized. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh no. Yeah. Um, and you know, the only thing I could attach myself to was I know how to work hard. So I took the, you know, the department's policy was three days bereavement leave. So I took three days off and I went right back to work and. You know, I can. I knew I couldn't quit or anything like that because it's like we got twins on the way. We just closed on this house. It's like I'm bound to this. And um, about a week and a half after that instance happened, um, his death, I was working in a person identified. You know, my name is Josh Adams. This was is Joe Adams. So J. Adams on a on a nameplate on a police uniform a kid that we were um, arresting for something. I don't remember what it was. is He recognized the name, and he's like, so was that your brother over in Lehigh? And I'm like, yeah. And then, and then he convinced—he started to basically talk shit about my brother. And I tried to kill him. Oh, man. Um, right there on the side of the street, essentially. And it was literally police officers taking a police officer and putting him in the back of a car and getting him out of there so that he didn't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my, my poor coworkers, you know, they're they take me just to the station and drop me off in the in the squad room. Like, yeah, just sit there, man, chill out, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and I was like, oh no. Cause, uh, uh, anger is something that I, I've never had the best temperament, but that was probably the first time where I went, like, I exploded. Preserved. Like
1: uncontrollable. No, was like gone. you were gone. gone. Like it, yeah.
3: And, uh, my, uh, Commander at the time came down. Apparently, obviously, somebody complained, as they do, and Mm -hmm. should have. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically came down, and his message to me was, if you ever do that again, you're fired. And um, from that moment on, the way I internalized that to me is, all right, man, you can't feel anything anymore.
1: Yeah. Get hard. Yeah.
3: And so I did. I, I took that, I know how to work hard now it'll be hard. And coming from, I remember my um, department head at that time, a quote from him when it came to mental health type things, if you need that kind of help, you don't belong in this line of work. So it's like, I can't even talk about this to anybody. And I couldn't talk to my ex-wife about it. Um, And she couldn't talk to me in hindsight. She couldn't talk to me about what she was going through. So it's like, here's these people grieving in different ways, but they can't even talk to each other about And, um, then, you know, a month later, it's September 11th and, Mm -hmm. you know, and I remember sitting on my, sitting on the floor in this crappy house we just bought, (laughs) pulling staples out of the floor to put in the new carpet so that we could actually move into it. It was, it was in rough shape. Um, listening to the radio as they were talking about, like, it's the end of the world.
1: Yeah.
3: You know, I mean, that, this, what's next? Yeah. Um. And then my uh, my daughters were due to be born in January and my ex-wife in mid-November went into the hospital one day because she wasn't feeling well. And they're like, you're having them now. And so it's high-risk, preemie, baby thing. Yep. And that was, it's tough to describe because for me it was, um, there was so much fear and anxiety and everything going into that but at the same time they couldn't come soon enough because mm. once they came and they were going to and, and they were very touch and go for survival for about a week and but once they were kind of like they're they're going to make it um you know that was kind of the here comes the sun moment and you know right at the end of that year yeah. you're like hey I can actually survive
0: right you yeah. know?
3: and um but to fast forward from there um you know, my—I never felt like I could talk to anybody about it, and people would always be like, "You know, I, things would constantly get brought up." Like, "Hey, your brother," and you know, it's—it's it's a bit of a notoriety type thing. The fellow that uh, killed him is—he obviously was captured, sentenced to prison for the rest of his life. Um, and I tried to seek as much normalcy as I could without having a connection. So, in—in in a marriage where I, we were never really well connected to begin with it was um almost a failure to launch at that point anymore mm-hmm. and we were we we, we are continuing. like I I adore my ex-wife she's a wonderful person um we're very amicable very close that way but you know we've kind of discovered in hindsight of everything you know because my that sense of doom and stuff never left I every day I went to work I was planning on dying yeah. I worked like I knew I was going to die. And she wondered every day which one of the days was the one I'm going to die. Because her experience with law enforcement was like, you guys get killed. Yeah. And uh, so there was there was a lot of tough dynamics in, in that relationship. And um, in 2008, my oldest brother, Chris, um, who was four years older than me. Well, take it back. He was about three years older than me. Um he had had a, he'd been treated for a heart condition, open heart surgery and stuff, and uh, actually twice. And then he was a very fit person, like ride my bike to work, run every day, go to the gym. He's on a business trip in LA, um, does his meetings, does his dinner, and then he's on the treadmill in the hotel that they're in downtown LA running. And he, so he had a rupturing thing in his heart, aorta. And basically dropped dead. Um, so, you know, he was 36. So 26, or excuse me, 34, 26, 34. You know, it's, and, you know, and I'm not only the, the, the doom thing just compounded again because it's yeah. like, man, yeah. we just don't very long <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah those we're a bunch of oh lemons, aren't we? <laughs> and uh, how old are you, Josh? I'm forty seven. Forty seven. <laughs> yeah. So I'm the first one to hit 35, 36, 37, clear through oh forty seven. And uh, wow, man. You know, and and for me, one of the things that I've learned about myself is I was basically I was operating under this: hey, today's my last day under the sun. Yeah. You know, every day, um, being a little so. You know, when it came to. Uh, relationships and things like that it's like i don't want i don't want people to miss me you know mm-hmm. so it's like okay well don't be you uh, know and just and, okay. and work hard do the best you can on this planet because one of these days you're gonna drop dead too
1: yeah
3: and i don't want people to miss me yeah you know i mean yeah you go to people's you go to funerals and stuff you see people bawling and it's just like i don't want people to cry over me you know i'm good but well, what did you <laughs> want them well, I didn't want to like, die, but, but, you know, what, just like, but like if I, like I'm, a neutral, a nice neutral exit. Oh, you know, oh like, okay. Good game. <laughs> right? Yeah. High fives. Everybody carry good, on. Good game. Good. Right? <laughs> just, like, totally you did it. But is, there,
1: but is there a neutral exit at, you know, such a young age? No. Like, and I I that's think, the, thing,
3: yeah. and none of it was rash. Yeah. But it's what got you to work the next day.
1: And that's the motivator here. Yeah. Well,
0: and that's your motivator for a lot of the behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, this is not unique to just you, mm-hmm. is it? I mean, this is like cultural almost, yeah. Yeah. right? But that's that's a really interesting way to put it. Yeah. yeah. I don't want them to miss me. I just don't want to be missed. missed. Yeah. So what am I gonna have to do in order to prevent being missed? missed. How does yeah. that
3: yeah. look if in my this life? This is gonna happen, but I don't want this. How do I make this happen? Yeah. You know, and yeah. And you know, so far Hasn't happened yet Yeah But uh, you know I do I still struggle With that sometimes Not um, bad. Like, oh I'm sure Okay how How much longer Am I going to be around And you know And and now I'm getting to the age Where it's like Man it's not even Going to be something cool You know At least <laughs> they died With their boots on I'm, I'm going to be the one That's like Dying in a hospital bed Or something pissed off Because I didn't You know Have something cool happen. <laughs> You want to go to Valhalla <laughs> yeah, I want to Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> Warrior's death man Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and, uh, anyway, so my, I learned working hard, I worked hard and then I worked harder and I worked harder. Um, in 2000, let's see, 2005, I broke my leg really bad at work and it's all, I mean, it's all full of metal now, but, uh, got a little bit of a disability settlement from that. And I was like, I'm going to take that money and I'm going to go get myself a college degree. Nobody from my family had ever gone to college. Nobody graduated, everything like that, and it was my counteract of being stupid. I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna go get me a bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. And so it took me ten years. I mean, that money didn't go very far, obviously, but uh, but then working a part time job to pay. So over the course of the next ten years, working full time, working a side job to pay for college and getting college done. Um, again, it's just like if I work hard, I don't feel. The harder I worked, the less I felt. Mm-hmm. And and I knew I was very conscientious of that. It's like just work hard, and then you don't feel anything, man. And uh, wow. wake up, work till you're exhausted, and go to sleep. And then um, I accomplished that in 2016, and I had had about three years left, three and a half years left before I could retire at 20 years as a police officer, and which is kind of what my intention was. And I put in for. Working in Orem, which is larger, and, and having a lot of different responsibilities there. I had, a, I had a great career. It's been very dynamic. It's been fun. A lot of cool stuff. Um, I put in for their chief of police job, Lyndon. It's a small, 15-man department. It's like, hey, this is kind of, This could be kind of like a little bit of a parachute to coast into that 20-year mark. Um, better money towards my pension, all these things, so let's do this. I put in for it with no expectation, and I actually got the job. And so I was like, okay. So I show up in Linden as as the chief of police, and it's just it's a great community. Everybody loves the police. Not a lot of crime, and I was kind of bored because mm. I'd been, mm. I couldn't, and and so what had happened is basically I'd been this guy that I would I could find stuff to do to stay busy until I was exhausted to where it's like I'm sitting in this office, she's out there opening uh, answering the phone. She's my personal assistant that handles eighty percent of my job anyway. <laughs> you know, just sign here. Uh. And I'm like... Like, where's the work? Like, yeah.
1: That's what I'm supposed to be doing. And, and work, so work. what
3: happened to me was all of the emotion, trauma, things like that, from a lot of cases, exposure to things, uh, death scenes, all the all the way back to, you know, with my brother and everything like that. I couldn't stay away from it. I, I, I could not run it anymore. I could not work it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sitting in this office, or I'd be in a meeting, and I would feel that grief come on, and... I mean, I would literally run out to my vehicle and get in and I had a, I had a, a, a pack of Charmin out there and, uh, I would ball my guts out mm-hmm. I'd go drive somewhere quiet and just ball. And I'm like, what is my problem? You know,
1: not working and hard enough. You're feeling yeah, it. I, you know, yeah. and it's like, why
3: can't I? And it's like, oh, this just keeps happening and I yeah. can't avoid it. And it's like, I, I feel it coming and I know it's coming so I can like escape so that people don't see it. But it's like, I can't stop yeah you know and i was very i felt very hopeless my that that's when i I was starting to have a lot of marriage problems um some problems with my personal beliefs um just a lot of stuff and uh i got to be very uh uh unhappy with myself i'd accomplished this got my degree and like nothing made me happy i have four beautiful daughters who are thriving and doing great things and it's like why can't i be happy for them and so i'm pissed off of myself uh, and, and absolute zero hope, some hopeless, like I'm done. Um, I knew exactly what I would do if I decided to actually do something like that. Um, but I told myself, okay, you're not a pansy. Go talk to a therapist just so you can check that box. So before you whack yourself, just at least that way you, you can, people can say he tried. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. And, uh, And I know that just sounds, (laughs) it's stupid to even say, but it's like, yeah, I was actually in that space once upon a time. And uh, I don't know if it's stupid, man. On the top of my game, it just crashed. I think think what's
0: important that we just have to highlight for a sec is like men in general, we won't even just talk first responders. We'll just talk men in general. Mm -hmm. There's this thing, and I'll speak for myself. I gotta freaking do this thing called life. I gotta take care of my family. I gotta show up. I gotta, I gotta produce something, I gotta create something. Hopefully I leave some little mark on the world, right? And that takes a lot of time and energy and effort. And you know, if I can do that without asking for a lot of help, like how much more badass am I? Mm-hmm. And then if I have to ask for help, like maybe I'm not as strong as I thought I was. Mm-hmm. And that mentality is so insidious that it, it begins to like permeate the subconscious where i'm not even deciding to do that anymore that's just what actually happens without even intentionally doing it because it's so deep within my behavioral day to day and and i think the thing that's so hard about stepping back like you did josh and even like you did jordan and i've done and bernie's done and mm-hmm. you know is is stepping back and going like Hey, something's not working here. I can see how things before, I could outwork it or I could run from it and numb it. I could, you know, I could numb it or run from it and outwork it, right? I did all those things. And then eventually, you're met with this this challenge. You're at the precipice and you and you look out to the future and you go, "This is unsustainable. Something's got to give here." And that is the moment of actual courage, of true strength, where I've got freaking Charmin in the freaking car, I'm hiding (laughs) from everybody, and I'm sitting there, and I'm doing my absolute best to hold it together and and keep up appearances and make sure everybody knows that I got everything together. The real moment of courage is coming out of that car with the Charmin in hand, snot bubbles coming down my face and going like... (sighs) This is not something I can do alone. I need I need some help. Let's go let's go talk to a, a sponsor. Let's go talk to a therapist. Let's go talk to my wife. Let's go talk to my friends. Let's be a fucking man and be powerful and be courageous. And I think that that is the for me such an important part of what we're doing mm-hmm. with Dear Hollow, with the podcast, with just what what we do in general. Generally is trying to flip the script on this idea that vulnerability or asking for help is weakness. And your story is is a brilliant example it is. of doing that. Exactly, because because yeah. you, you when, when I'm at this place where I can't go any further without help, the saddest, most pansy, I love that you said pansy. I know,
1: pansy, yeah.
0: I don't wanna say pathetic, but really like, I don't know, tragic thing is to just hide, continue to hide. Because as you come out from behind the hiding Charmin draped walls, you really begin to find out who you actually are. And I think, um, that's, that's really hard. Was
3: it? I mean, I can imagine how difficult that was for you to, to do. Like I said, I was, I, I didn't know who to talk to. I didn't know what was wrong with me. I just knew I was falling and I couldn't stop falling. I was exhausted. I'd worked my whole life. I was physically and emotionally exhausted and I could not run my shit anymore. Yeah. Oh. And it's like, okay, well, how do I package this thing up? Mm. You know, to make package it look it the up. prettiest uh-huh. before I yeah. right. punch yeah. out. Right. Yeah. And uh so I I reached out to so in my professional circles, I'd been part of uh some training and stuff for dealing with people having psychotic episodes and stuff on the street. So like consumers of mental health services and stuff. And it's like, okay, I know this particular person who's a, who's a psychologist, um, great lady. She had actually retired from the state, um, and she had kind of maintained a little once or twice a week practice just to keep her feet wet. And I reached out to her and uh, I, well, I called the office scheduled an appointment canceled it Call the office <laughs> schedule the appointment cancel <laughs> it yeah, yeah you know and one of the times i did it because it's like i know what's going to happen it's not even worth the 40 bucks you know i'll just save 40 bucks and the copay and not you know, yeah i already you know, know what they're going to tell me yeah they're gonna i don't know what I I need to do know. i just got to do yeah. it yeah. Yeah. you know yeah. it's not going to fix me yeah, yeah. and right. uh but on the third time i went i remember sitting down in her little office thing and she's got a little couch I sat down and I cried for an hour. <laughs> there was basically no conversation. Because mm-hmm.
1: that space available for you, did, you felt safe? Time,
3: it is the first time I ever felt empathy okay. in uh, my
1: life. Okay.
3: Wow. I didn't even know that that's what that was. Yeah. But it's like <laughs> she's literally holding space. I mean, she's uh-huh. sitting there probably just like, I guess I'm getting paid. But mm-hmm. I'm like yeah. you know, this is if watching this dude just run through my tissue boxes here. And, (laughs) and then, you know, as things were, she's like, I think I can work with you and I'll see you next week. That was it. Perfect. Good. (laughs) You know? Yeah, uh, I do. I love that. uh, (laughs) Yeah. And so I started, and so that turned into this cycle of, for about 18 months, um, every Wednesday afternoon I was in therapy. I mean, it cost a fortune, Mm -hmm. um, But I, and, and the thing of it is, is there was such a stigma behind it. Like, I was like, nobody can know I'm Mm. doing this. Totally, No one can know to where you would have thought I was the dope dealer. uh, The way I would drive to her office. I, she, she lived in a, her office was in a different city. And so it's like, I would take back roads. I would even go into a cul-de-sac. It's called washing. So like dope dealer stuff, they'll pull into cul-de-sacs to do a U-turn to make sure nobody's following (laughs) them. I mean, I'm doing things like that completely rational hoodie up. Sunglasses on to walk into this office is like I don't want anybody knowing I'm going to a therapist because yeah. it'll blow up because if they do then what what yeah because if you need this kind of help you don't belong in this line of work right. I'm Take still stuck because that's what gun. you were yeah. Yeah. well and that's yeah. what you were told no, by your what, chief exactly, in the very beginning like never, so you have this yeah. culture already yeah yep so it's like you know and all these if if, if my people find out there you know there goes all of my credibility and mm-hmm and did so, you ever um, did you
1: ever think that you would lose your job and then not get your retirement was that a
3: potentially yeah, okay yeah yeah but i part of it honestly at that point is like i don't even care because yeah. go, you're at the I'm point where you're like yeah, yeah i'm gonna I'm off definitely. myself
1: i better do something else and, yeah uh you
3: know i had a couple million dollars worth of life insurance ready to go i knew exactly what the policy how i could die so the policy was still good for, i mean it was just yeah creepy you know creepy but creepy but
1: reality <laughs> yeah that's I mean, reality I though was covering yeah my bases. Yes. i wasn't
3: being sloppy about no, it no, no yeah but, dude you're so kind <laughs> yeah you're, you're <laughs> no, so <right>. kind <laughs> yeah.
1: well i feel like it's hard to play this dual person <laughs> mm-hmm. right it eventually takes a toll on us that you can't do
3: it you can't it's you can't it yeah. is
1: unsustainable and so you know there is the taking myself out mm-hmm. or
3: yeah, I know exactly. I mean, it's like I, I dealt with hundreds of suicides. I, it's like, I know exactly how to, how to do this to make it like
0: Dude, I can't even tell you slick. how many times. I can't count how many yeah. times I've had somebody tell me that exact thing. You've heard it too, George. Yeah, you could write the manual. You've heard it, George. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because this is, it's, it's innate to want to continue to protect. Mm-hmm. And this is the scariest thing about suicide. This is what I talk about when I go and do my talks and stuff. Is that deep down there's this strangely almost altruistic desire to rid the world of the problem that is me. me. Yes. Yeah, that was I am this yeah. burdensome thing, and this burden that I bring to the world, I can make the world a better place without me, which is so backwards. Mm-hmm. That's just never, ever, ever true. But in the short term, that feels very true because of all the stuff that I carry. But what if I could unload that stuff? What if I wasn't carrying it anymore? What if these burdens that I have now kind of like personified and, and over identified with, what if I could unload those burdens? What if I could free myself of them? Would I no longer feel like a burden? And, and that's kind of the hopefully the question that people begin to ask themselves as they start toying with this idea of asking for help is what am I carrying? that I believe is burdensome to the world, holding that in and never talking about it doesn't help anybody. I have to offload that somehow. And talk therapy is a great way to do it. Mm -hmm. It's not the only way. There's many different ways to do it offloading it is is it's the goal you got to figure out some way to take this thing that feels so burdensome and so dark and so scary and so painful and flip it you know make the mess the message Message, thing it's got to work for you And if you can do that man it's a whole it's another ballgame it's game changer
1: well i feel like that's why we're here today right is to start changing that culture because it's the culture like you walked into this station and they're like yeah shut down your feelings if you can't do this then you shouldn't be signed up for this and that's why I feel like Matt and Jordan, you guys travel the world to like break the stigma. And it's I feel like making a difference is letting people know that you can do go another route.
0: Right. Yeah, boy. And it, and now Josh is. I mean, like next week, we're gonna be up in Layton, and Josh is getting on a stage telling his story.
1: Heck yeah! Yeah, you're gonna. I'm hear gonna him. be there. Yeah, I'll see ya. That's cool. Did you Pay for a ticket? Um, no, because i <laughs> I slept with the I slept with the owner of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> How would it be? <laughs> <Close enough. laughs> i know how to yeah. get in <laughs> <laughs> me too just kidding <laughs> but no matt i also love what you said about suicide because i feel like there's people who hear about suicide and they get so angry at the person like why would you do that to me and they turn it and make it onto them right but when people are feeling suicidal, they really feel like they are adding a burden to this world. They're not in their right mind. They don't mm-hmm. know that that's not actually what's going on. It's the unloading that they need to unload and stuff. And so I think how you put that was very beautiful that, you know, suicide, when they get to that point, is a they feel like they're adding a burden to the world that they can take out, and then the world will be better. They truly believe that. It's the so, lies we tell
0: ourselves.
2: Yeah. yeah. I, I want to know the 18 months of therapy that you did, what do you think was the most drastic shift in action that you took in that 18, 18 months that pulled you out of that place, and what was it?
3: Her teaching me what trauma was. Being able to feel empty, like it's like, oh, this is actually safe. You know, I'm not what is, gonna, Sorry, what is safe? Yeah, what is talking safe? about? Okay. Talking about it is yeah. safe. Yeah. Like, you know, if I sneak in the back door and da, 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 you know, <laughs> but, the conditions <laughs> are right, it's very safe. safe. Put my hood House. on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's true. But but the interesting about that was is kind of an aha that I had was a few months into that process. The question I remember asking myself was, why are you being so why? Why are you being so paranoid? Why are you like? Basically, who gives a shit?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: So you know, I let my. i was still married. I she. I let her know. Um How long did you hide it from your wife? A couple months. A couple months.
0: Yeah. So after a couple of months, you would finally tell her, and I was then... like,
3: "Hey, just you know, because we, because <laughs> I had, you uh, sure like, know, <laughs> going. Before, I've been cheating on you with a therapist. Yeah, seeing another woman every Wednesday for <laughs> yeah. a months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, uh, cause before that, I mean, I had gone to the EAP one once a few years before mm-hmm. one time. And I remember when I started unpacking some of the stuff from work, it was, it was a particular uh, death, um, situation I handled. And, uh, she was absolute, this poor 25 year old grad student, whatever EAP clinician was completely traumatized by what I was telling her. Like she was starting to physically react to what I'm telling her and I'm like of and course I'm like, she was. Oh my god. And and so I was like if what I'm telling her happened to me is traumatizing a therapist, I must be screwed beyond any redemption at all. I am gone. Never tell another soul. Yeah. <laughs> further, a
0: further reason to think that I'm a burden. Yeah. I can't even yeah. tell anybody. They yes. can't handle it. This yeah. is the
3: pro. This I'm is too the professional much. ear yeah. and I'm making it bleed. Yeah. Yes. And uh yeah. so you know, and then we'd gone through some marital counseling, and that never resonated with me. Um I, yeah, that's horrified. <laughs> <Jordan. a different,
0: laughs> marital counseling's <laughs> rough, man. It's, it's not, not is cool. Rough. Yeah. It's rough, especially well, they I got pissed off not, at the therapist. Yeah. They always pissed
3: me off. Like, mm-hmm. sh- like they'd go after her, and I'd be like, "Don't go after her." You know, I, I don't know. I was just, I was in this attack mode the whole time. Mm-hmm. But anyway... Protect her. that's <laughs> exactly yeah, going to uh-huh. say. protect mode. Yeah, he did. One time, I remember one being like, telling her, you need to be more like him. And I'm like, the last thing she needs to be is more like this. <laughs> <laughs> this is the problem. I'm going to need yeah. you to holster that hypothetical pistol. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude. Yeah, that was the last time I ever went to that bozo. Yeah. But uh, anyways, um, I kind of had that. And so I told my secretary and I told my personal assistant and I started telling people I'm like, well, and I, and I'm being me and I'm sarcastic and I'm kind of that way. I was like, yeah, every Wednesday I go get the air pressure checked in my head.
0: You know? Yeah.
3: Um, it's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. I got to make myself to check up. I'm a dope. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and this is in a department. There was only, there's only 15 police officers there, um, within a couple of weeks this little trickle effect of guys coming in closing the door being like tell me more about that or i think i could use that kind of thing and i'm like shit yeah yeah (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. then let's get and so i started on my own okay here's somebody that we can here's somebody that's local you know here's an embr guy here's a and and so i'm reading the books and i'm like i had no idea about any of this crap you know yeah um and i shouldn't call it Podcast, uh, know what what crap. And you know what I'm talking about. Stuff, crap, shit. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? So we started sending. So I set up things for these guys to be able to go. And so we kind of created our own in house, semi secret EAP to hmm. get people to, to people and and started getting really good results to where I had over 50% of my people within a matter of a couple of months that were getting that help.
0: What are some of the. Changes that you saw departmentally, individually with the guys who started going?
3: Uh, I think there was more grace towards one another. Mm. I think there was different. I think those outward mindsets, being able to see things, you know, it's not. People don't necessarily need a full-scale change in their view. Right. But it's like if you can tweak that just a couple of degrees, that can make all the difference. Right. The job's not going to be different, but if your view of that is different, Mm. even just a little bit. I like that. Not distorted, but just a little different focus. Yeah makes all the difference in the world in how you how you're able to do it and and so it was that kind of it created there was a lot of positivity about it and you know the the awesome thing about it too was you know they knew i was going so there's no stigma for them to be going right you know if 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 i'm doing it i can you know and and so rather than that if you need that kind of help you don't belong in this line of work and unintentionally it kind of created more like if you're not getting that kind of help, maybe you don't belong in this line of work, mm-hmm. you know, and Flip the script, yeah. yeah, you know, and so that kind of started getting in a good space and everything. And then in 2020, um, when I, right when I was ready to announce that I was going to retire, um, uh, I was also getting divorced, COVID, all the police stuff and everything. The chief of police that was in Orem retired. And a lot of my friends and so forth, were like, you should come over here and do this one and Orm was had a lot of issues right then. They just had, so one of my partners in sex crimes, uh, he had just ended his life, um, 17 years on the job. And, um, there was just a lot going on there, um, with some behavior and some performances and just, and so I went there with no other. In- so I applied for it, ended up getting it. But my whole intention was to change these things. Hmm. Um, and one of the first things that we did was create a um you know, policy where you will everyone will get wellness checks. Awesome. It's paid for the department. Awesome. It's on our time, it's on our dime, you will. And to kind of dumb it down for, you know, skeptics and and, and in inside the department and everything, it's like, hey, we all go to the dentist and get our x rays and our teeth polished every six months. Yes. You know, that's a wellness check. Yeah. You know, there's no stigma behind that. So why not, you know, if our mind is our most valuable tool and where most of the liability is where every, every problem and every solution generates in the mind of people in this line of work, how about we maintain that thing a little better? Yeah. And so, you know, inside of that, making that mandatory, the stigma was completely erased. You cannot walk through that building anymore and wonder who anybody who's going to see a therapist because everyone everyone is going to see a therapist. That's awesome. And then they can get all the follow-up ones and everything. And and I mean, these aren't cheap things, but it's pennies on the dollar when it comes to what it costs to try and um, replace somebody. Yes. So instead of the, hey, you can't do this anymore and you're gone, or we're going to get rid of you, you're dismissed for your alcoholism or or anything like that, it's let's restore this guy.
1: Yeah. You know, Uh,
3: and and a, a restored human being is a redeemed human being and is a powerful human being and as an ambassador. And as a, you know, that person is now a subject, you know, the people that you treat at Deer Hollow, they come out of there. And in my mind, they are a subject matter expert on right. recovery, yeah. Yeah. Right. on yeah. trauma, on stuff like that, because they just did the deep dive. Yeah. You know, they they should be celebrated. They should be welcomed back with open arms. They're um, a resource now. Oh yeah. yeah. It's like this person now has all the, has the ability you know, I'm a fixer in my job, but that's that's now a healer, much like you in my mind, where it's like they actually have lived it
0: once you learn how to heal yourself you can teach others how to heal that's kind of how it works i mean you know i like to say you can't push rope yeah right (laughs) you try and push the rope doesn't get pushed if i want to help somebody up the hill and i want to drag them up the hill i got to get up in front of them them. i gotta start pulling along right like we can't keep trying to push people into things we got to pull people towards things and i got to be
3: the first one to do it and that's what that's that's what you did in your department yeah and it's it's just been i mean it's been very positive and so uh you know first watch that that's what we do is it's let's implement these practices in departments. Let's get rid of the stigmas. Let's make it, let's make this normal. So your young entry-level officers, you know, and to kind of kind maybe to try and quantify the issue that we deal with. So in Utah, which is actually a pretty pro police state, things like that, we have about a 47% failure rate in retention of our new officers. So from day zero to year four, about 47% of our police officers leave the job completely. Within four completely years. Yeah, within the first four years. Um, What's that um, number again? About 47%. So 47%. it's a 50% failure rate. So one in every other guy that we hire statistically is going to quit in that first you know, four 20% years. of Isn't their it, career yeah. um, because of... You know, there, there's external factors, like we're competing with the virtual market. I mean, when they've got friends that are sitting in their boxer shorts, typing code all day, making more money.
1: Yeah. You got to start, you know, again. Yeah.
3: But, you know, if you feel duty and if you want, you know, and we're asking you to be here at a time wearing a certain uniform, performing a certain function versus playing Warcraft and programming all day.
1: Yeah. You
3: know, um, so it's it's what kind of life do you want to have? And some go different ways. But that identify being exposed to things where you're like, man, this sucks, right? You know, or it's three a.m. on Christmas morning and I'm driving around in a, a black and white police car versus home in bed, or you know, I'm gonna miss Christmas morning,
0: and, and you know, the,
3: the things like that. So you know, as we on a, on a to sell it to to help departments and stuff understand the the what this costs us, you know, it's $120, 125000 dollars to recruit. Background, pre-employment, train, hire, equip a new police officer. One
0: hundred twenty-five grand per yeah, person. Yeah, that,
3: that's that's the initial investment into putting them to work before they get in a car on their own and
1: go do their job. And then after four years, they quit.
3: And within and and if half of those guys are leaving within four years, you're it's really it's more like you're paying yeah. about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars per yeah. one that sticks. Yeah. Okay. And then there's just the aggravation of the people that we. The field trainers and all that kind of stuff that are doing all the teaching and develop, trying to develop these guys in those time, and then they leave, which is demoralizing for a police department as well. Um, but one of the one of the things that uh, impacts in some of the exit interviews and stuff that I've had is the mental strain and things mm-hmm. like that, not feeling equipped. So part of what a wellness pr- program does that is so from from that infancy stage through, you're being. You're, you're okay to talk about your, you're okay to talk about your frustration. You're okay to, here's a therapist you can go air it out with and, and can help with those things. And that's increasing to where right now we, I mean, you've got that, that 47% number is not my number. My number is more like about 8%. Because of
0: yeah. your wellness program. I think, program. It's, I think yeah. it's exactly yeah. that. Yeah. Um, because it sends a message. Yeah. What, what do you think the message that's being received really is when you come in and say, hey, I'm going to implement this department wide not only is this mandatory for everybody but we're now going to make this cultural
3: mm-hmm. what what's the message that's being sent or received was the, it intentional it's, or it's, intentional it's, it's i think that's more that that creates you know when people say oh this is my family like, uh, you know, yeah. we mean it yeah you know we're going to yeah. put our money where our mouth is yeah and, so there's trust built there well i think so and and yeah. and yeah. we all like my i have my i have a therapy appointment today for there you, you go know, everybody and i, I want to say even right. just trust <laughs> 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 he's like you know, yeah. You're
0: uh, not putting
1: your hoodie on or anything? uh, No. What What
0: were you going to say, Brandy? I was
1: going to say, I think it also creates safety. Yeah. Like these men are coming in or Mm -hmm. women are coming into this job that is unsafe Mm -hmm. and putting themselves in unsafe space. But knowing that their department has this trust and this safety, I think that creates a lot for them Mm -hmm. to have that. Yeah.
3: Yeah. You know, I get more um, appreciations, if you will, from people for having that program than when we bump up their pay. Um, but on the lot. flip side, wow. just as important you know if, if we're struggling to keep these young people, okay, but when we have our our ten and our fifteen year guy who's been through the gauntlet, the ability to be able I mean his value so if if this new guy leaving is worth one hundred and twenty five, well, how many millions of dollars in training and experience and and everything is behind this veteran guy? yeah, so you're telling me that sending this guy through anything treatment wise all the way through residential is not pennies on the dollar to what his actual value is, you know? Mm -hmm. So helping people in my position and stuff, see that, Hey, these guys are, they're invaluable. And, and not only, not only just to restore them to be like, Hey, we want to get you from 15 to 20. But if you feel redeemed for that time too, now you're that ambassador. Mm -hmm. Now you're that, you're that rah-rah cheerleader where it's like, you know, some of my guys that have, uh, that have gone through some, you know, IOP or RTC and things like that. Um, They come back and they're like, we need to get an ice bath. We need to get a mm-hmm. sauna. We need to get, you know, they're, they're well, the wellness. ringless. Yeah. Yeah. We're yeah. the ring It's like, I, in some respects I'm sitting back. It's like these peer support people are running the show now. I just, <laughs> just check. awesome.
1: Yeah. You know? Yeah.
3: And, and so it, it, it becomes out because they do. I, and, and talking to them, it's like, they are like, I have a whole new lease on life. I have a mm-hmm. outlook on life. I've been, Healed, redeemed, yeah. whatever redeemed. it is, where it's like I'm. I love I'm, I'm, the I'm be, I'm redeemed. better than yeah. I was before. Yeah, uh, I just love that term, you know? redeemed. Redeemed. Man. Yeah, it's just so, it gets hijacked in yeah. religion and stuff. I think. But, but, but but uh, want yeah, but a human being, redemption. Yeah,
1: everyone wants but redemption. We, we yeah. want to
3: be redeemed, not just yeah.
1: oh,
0: some dude's going to redeem me someday. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Because what I mean, what is redemption really? It's this opportunity for rebirth. I'm better than I was. Yeah. 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 All this stuff that happened to me, it happened for a reason. And I've made it through it and now I'm glad that I made it through it and I'm glad that it happened and I'm grateful for all of it. I mean, that's, that's the end all be all for me when it comes to redemption is I'm not going to look back and go like, ah, that's, that's, let's strike that from the record, strike that, you know, all of it matters because it's defining
3: my redemptive value well
1: and then when you feel redemption you want to go share that with someone because it feels so good yeah and that like I'm yeah better. yeah
3: i found i found a life hack
1: yeah yeah, yeah. and it's like well i'm going to share that with this person because i love this person i'm going to share with this person so that's really cool that your department's kind of taking that on so do you feel like the culture of that is is changing
3: yes good significantly yeah to where mm-hmm. like i said i mean it's it's now more peer driven than
1: that's awesome Leadership driven that's awesome. Is
3: where it should have always been. Yeah. And I look at it as, you know, man, that would have been cool to have to have twenty some years ago. Yeah. I'd have I'd have had a much better lived experience over the course of those same twenty years if I'd have had some things like that. But rather than, you know, kick a rock, it's like, mm-hmm. well, at least I know that these guys have a better opportunity and, and things like that. And and I think, um, industry wide, that's a big awakening people are having. Is it's like, hey. We've actually been really, really, really bad at taking care of our people. Yeah. Really bad. Yeah. So how about we not be really bad anymore about taking care of our people? That's awesome. Yeah,
1: so so um, for you and Jordan, like, what what is it that you guys are doing today to, like, keep this going and changing the culture?
2: Well, what comes to mind... Your department, how cool is that? That everything, everything that we just got to talk about, and, and I was a we were at a training in Marion County. Uh, I don't know, a year and a half ago, and there was another chief that got up and he said, kind of what you did. He stood up in front of everybody and said, "That is my therapist because we had the therapist in the room. I see her every week and she saved my life."
1: That's awesome.
2: That is not very rare. Yeah, what that guy did and what you've done in ORM, and it's, it, and I was thinking we've been to a hundred different departments agencies and training in the trainings in the last two and a half years and a lot of people say it you know a lot of people invite us in say hey will you come and do this this tactical trauma training for our guys hit the a shift hit the b shift and they'll dedicate four hours to it but i don't want to disrespect anyone but then the, it stops there they check yeah. the box they check a they box ch- yeah and Ooh. they say hey we did it we did we our brought digby. you guys yeah. in hey yeah hey, we've got the wellness app that's going to tell you you should sleep better and work out and maybe get in an ice bath, right? But then yeah. to stand up in front of everyone and say, I'm doing this and to lead by example, to do what's happening in your agency, it trickles down. And that is not very common. Mm-hmm. And we only cover mostly, you know, aggressively the Pacific Northwest. And they're, compared to five years ago, it's a, it's a drastic change. It's night and day to eat even invite us in to do a four hour or an eight hour training or to spend that time with them or to invite us into their house and to have that conversation. But there's so, so much more fear associated with it. Their, their fear, because it's hard to get guys to work today is if these guys admit that they have a problem, will they leave the profession? Quit. And, and that is, it, it's selfish, right? And, but it's a reality. You yeah. Know, how many people come forward and say they can't do this job anymore? And the goal isn't to say that you can't do the job anymore, but to do this job,
0: you need to be healthy. Yeah. Yeah, but I think, I think what we've found as, as far as like a pattern goes is that reckoning with reality is inevitable. Eventually, without help, if we keep this culture of not asking for help alive, Inevitably, people are going to leave early and retire early and quit early. It will happen, and we're not just going to have a retention problem within the first four years. We're going to have an early retirement problem, and actually, that's what the literature says. Like we know that early retirement well, is a major me. problem because we're not ha- we're not implementing systems of support, which is what people are begging for. And this is this is the the and I'll be bold here the the extremely frustrating part of doing what we do as we go around is being met with active active opposition mm-hmm. to our very you know clear intent to want to help and save and get people back to work but we're met with active opposition from people in positions like Josh's yes. mm-hmm. saying no we don't want you here because we're afraid of this thing that's going to happen we're afraid of that thing that's going to happen And so what I think I think the the nature of, the dynamic right now is we're we're in this weird holding pattern in some places, but we we have to recognize that this this holding pattern is being perpetuated by a lot of fear. People are very, very afraid. They're afraid to lose people. They're afraid that things are gonna get worse. They're afraid that nothing's gonna change. And historically, what does fear always bring? It always brings the same results stagnation Mm -hmm. it brings emptiness it brings um more of the same it's fear's design is to prevent change and to be an agent of change you have to stare fear in the fucking face and you have to look at it and you have to go no i'm gonna go for it anyways because that is what i am about and that's what it takes to Ask for help. That's what it takes to implement change in your department. That's what it change to cha- implement change in your life, right? You know. And of course, I'm gonna bring up the cold because it's one of my favorite things <laughs> in the world, right? But like, the reason why the cold is so freaking awesome is because it's terrifying. You look like we get in every every single morning. I looked at this morning. I got up. Yesterday was a rough day. Just went to sleep. It was just a weird day. Didn't didn't end how I wanted to end. By no means. And I got up this morning. Had a rough conversation between me and Brindy, and we're just trying to figure some stuff out right now. We're in kind of like a weird, I don't know, self-discovery thing, which is normal, and it's good. And I was like, this is stupid, so dumb. Like, I'm, I'm upset, I'm frustrated, I know i got to do this today. I'm just like, life is kind of dumb right now. I'm just, screw it, I'm not going to do it. And then I walk right up to that cold-ass water, and I look right at it, and I can feel the pang of fear. And I can feel it taunting me. Right, Like, you little bitch. You can't do it. You're not going to get in. And I'm like, screw this. And I get in. And that's what has to happen every single day. You have to stare fear right in the freaking face. And you have to say, no. I'm doing it anyways. I'm coming for you. And if you don't, it'll eat you alive. And that's, in my opinion, what's happened in first responder culture. We have let fear drive our decision making. And it's led to death and it's led to suicide, and it's led to pain and hurt and, and kids without dads and moms, and that is tragic. And so our charge as we go out and we travel around, what we do is we boldly go where no man has gone before, no, we boldly, <laughs> we boldly uh, shout, change. And that has to be met with opposition and I get it, but it's, it's, it's extremely frustrating to be met with as much opposition as we have. I I don't know. I I don't know why I brought this up, but it's just, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. What do you think, Jordan? (laughs) We fear change. We do. It's crazy, man. It's
2: a Wayne's world quote. I don't know if you've seen it when Garth is like, we fear change drinking a Pepsi. Um, You asked what we're doing? I like that's all we do is yeah. is get out there in front of people. And when I put together a flyer, I don't know three years ago and said, "Hey, we want to come and talk to your people." Um, we'll you know and see what happens with jared jared nesri is our, the third member of the godhead with and the trinity or the trinity you guys kill me and, uh, and i love it and i love what jared says is when somebody invites us into their house because we've never solicited to go into any place we've just said hey we're out there we would love to do this and when people get the courage to ask us to come into their agency their department and talk to their people jared nesri who who um, came through our program in 2017 who is kicking ass right now and has been ever since. He kicks the door down. He says he likes to punch him in the throat <laughs> and talk to him about his story that is tragic and that is he got to that place where he didn't want to live anymore, where he was ready to take his own life because that's what that job uh, uh, will do to you. Mm-hmm. That's what dealing with people like me in the past will do to you. Yeah. So I apologize to to, <laughs> to you, Josh, anyone else there, out there that has to suffer from – uh, the little lost junkies out there that are causing that kind of trauma. But it's it's tragic what's going on in life. Everyone is sick, and everyone suffers when they try to help each other and get well. And uh, when we get in there, Jared kicks open the door. Matt goes in and says, hey, this is what's going on in your brain, your mind, and your heart, and this is how we can fix it and change it. And that's the goal. And 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 we've been very effective in doing that the last two and a half years. I think we've done over 100 trainings now. I think the last podcast we'd been at 25 Um and so we're making a huge impact. And it's really cool to know about what Josh is trying to do um with First Watch and implementing what's going on uh in other agencies so that everyone can get that. Uh what'd you say that the pressure, the The air pressure, the pressure check? Pressure check check between their (laughs) ears. And uh it's great. It feels good to help other people.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. Does and you're good at it. I've watched you. You have very good energy. People can feel your genuineness and you've you've been in trauma yourself and you are relatable and you create a safe space for people and it's really cool.
2: I appreciate you saying that because generally I'm viewed as just an asshole. No. No. Um, Far from, and so is he. Right, I I am. Like, like, like. From from
1: the people who are fearing what you're doing, yeah, probably them.
2: And it's because we don't hold back. We say, we say what's on our mind, and people don't want to hear the truth. And I not saying what we always say is truth. We're always going to say what's on our mind. And sometimes I'll have to apologize for what I say <laughs> later. But the truth is, is I'd rather talk to somebody that tells me, hey, you're screwing up. Yeah. Hey, that's yeah. bullshit. Yes. Hey, you shouldn't be doing that. You should yeah. probably go apologize to your wife. Or yeah. do you know what I mean? Or whatever yes. that is. Or yeah. hey, hey, you should. mom says, hey, you should do this with your kids. You don't want anyone to tell us what to do. But I, I love... When someone can shoot straight with me and say, yep. "Hey, you're screwing up,"
1: yeah, rather you're than done. saying nothing, because that's yes. what it used to be. Nope, push it down, say nothing, and now it's directness, and it's people so really feed off of it. So, um, with anyone listening today, like how could they get a hold of you guys or into the programs you're running and stuff like that? I can talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, so okay. uh, on our website has uh, all the information. It has our bios, it has our links, it has our training schedule, it has what we're doing on there. And I always just say, if you want to be a part of this, you can email me um, at jordan at com, and I'll even give my phone number. It's 801-833-6932. That's my personal cell phone number and I will answer the phone. And if I don't answer it, I will call you back and we will not stop until you have the help that you need. That has been our goal. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be with Deer Hollow or our, pro- our program because it isn't there. It isn't a perfect fit for everyone. It's very strict, and you have to be ready and willing to do that. But there are countless programs that we have relationships with that we will not stop until you or your loved one, loved one is in a safe place.
1: It's true, um, guys. He he will. He'll do anything if you call him. I'm serious. <laughs> so <laughs>
3: that's, that's awesome wife. of you. For <laughs> what? Whatever.
1: She's just as good as you. What about you, Josh?
3: So I'm not gonna give out my. Phone you don't want to give
1: out your uh, digits? Come on. <laughs>
3: no, you can Google me. Uh, so I can be reached at Josh at First Watch, which is with a number one, stwellness.com dot com um, website there too. It's it's that we we have offerings for people. It's it's an opt in. It's okay. Well, what we have a, a a service that we can provide, but what I do. My specialty in that is, okay, well, how do we implement this in your department? How do we tweak it to match your culture and stuff? So, you know, we we bring a, a new department online, and then I'm getting in touch with their admin peer support. So it's like, okay, well, how do we make it yours? Not just here's this product you bought. Yeah. You know, let's now let's tune it to your vibration in your department. And
0: to be super clear, First Watch Wellness, yeah. 1ST Wellness, yeah. Yeah. Watch Wellness, yeah. 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 is – a a a packaged system that does what josh did in his department where you can kind of pick up the bones of this wellness program and then josh taylor fits it
3: to your individual department correct yeah 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 and it's 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 awesome i mean it's as simple as just these the wellness checks you know like getting your teeth checked to where you know more you know intensive specific things that different individuals will have based on their circumstance, based on their lived experience, based on their childhood. I mean, and it's for their spouses, for their kids, everything. It's like everybody that we can help with this thing. It's very much a passion project for it's that's involved. Um, you know, I don't, That that's my whole part of it is it's like, Hey, this is, this is part of my moving the needle forward. Yeah. In a, in what I feel like has been essentially a failure for years and years and years in this,
2: Redemption,
1: redemption. Uh, I do. I love
0: it. Coming from (laughs) a godhead, that (laughs) feels good. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for coming on, fellas. We appreciate you guys. Love you both.
1: Well, I personally want to say thank you to both of you for doing what you're doing and speaking for the families, also because not only did you guys get yourselves where you needed to be, that effect goes into your homes too. And so for getting yourselves the help that you needed, it also shows for the people who live in your home that they can also get help. And, and it just made me think of the retreat we went to this weekend. And I didn't realize how much the men online, it bleeds into your homes. And I just thank you, both of you, for doing what you do. You're awesome. You're welcome. Thanks for being on today.
2: It's a privilege. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks.